0: today I talk to Brian O'Neill, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics. We are going to discuss the concept of human-centered design. And one of the things I loved about my conversation with Brian is he, like me, has a little less emphasis on the technical, a little more on this human-centered process of how do we create things that succeed for people. And when we're talking about data, how do we create data and data products that are actually usable by people, focused on outcomes that people care about, and can help us as people do better in our jobs and in the things we are trying to achieve. Brian also has a fabulous podcast of his own, uh, which I highly recommend you check out. It's the Experiencing Data podcast with Brian O'Neill. I will link to that podcast in the show notes. And he has so many wonderful resources about this human-centered design approach, as well as many other fabulous topics around data. So enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, where we explore the human side of analytics to help amplify the impacts of those out to change the world with me, Alexandra Mannery. Thank you so much for joining me today, Brian. I am very eager for our conversation because I think we're going to cover a lot of really wonderful things, in part how to make sure your data products don't suck. So I was wondering if we could begin with uh, you introducing yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, my name is Brian T. O'Neill. I'm a actually a classically and jazz trained musician in one of my lives and then my other life, which is probably why you contacted me is uh, I'm the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, which is an independent consulting and training firm. Uh, and, and my focus these days is really on helping uh, data product leaders increase adoption of machine learning and analytics solutions. And why? Because the, the main reason is a lot of the work that really good data scientists and analysts and, and, and BI practitioners are doing doesn't get used. And I think it's a waste of time, talent, and resources. And I think design can help. So I try to help companies either by helping them with their products or helping them with their team, use human-centered design to get better outcomes and better results.
0: That's one of the main reasons I reached out to is I love this idea of human-centered design. So could we just start with, what do we mean by that phrase?
1: Sure. It probably sounds a little bit trite because, we're customer-centered, we're user-centered. And so often when we talk about, so if we're in the realm of technology and and digital solutions and things like this, and obviously data is a part of that, we talk about this, but so much of the time the work as it's practiced begins with looking at data sets and then reverse engineering some kind of technology solution, a dashboard, an application, a report, and then you get some kind of output. And then the hope is that The person that asked for it will be able to use it usually to make some kind of better decision in the future. That's pretty much what a lot of the data stuff we're doing. Why are we looking at rear view stuff? It's because it's supposed to theoretically help us make better future decisions. If no decisions are made, if there's no decision support happening, then all we did is we really, as I call it, we did a rehearsal. You know, there was no concert. It's just another rehearsal and we practiced our technology chops, but we actually just spent a bunch of money and time and resources, but we didn't actually achieve anything. And sometimes there, it may be such, there's nothing to see here. And that, that could be the genuine result of like, we thought there'd be some, you know, we learned something about patient data here. And it's just, there's really, there's nothing here. That's going to help us know, like readmission rates or whatever. That could be the case, but I think more often than not, there probably is some signal in there. The solution has not been designed with the idea of who is going to use this in the last mile. What's it like to walk a day in their shoes? And how do we slide this data product? And I'm going to use the word data products to collectively mean machine learning algorithms, dashboards, custom data products, which are, you know, applications that are being used to, again, for intelligence reasons to make better decisions. Collectively, I'm going to call this stuff data products. If we don't understand what it's like to be the person that's going to use this stuff, it's really hard to consistently make good stuff. And so the other premise of my kind of operating model, and a lot of designers don't like this is that you can't not make a design decision. Every choice about what the person in the last mile is going to use is a choice. There's no null choice. So therefore, in a way, everyone is a designer that's touching this solution from the data architects, to the BI developers, to the engineers, to the sponsor or stakeholder, they're all designers, they're lowercase d designers. They don't know it, but they're making the decisions about what is going to be the experience at the end. And sometimes this is what I also call byproduct design, which is we didn't really intentionally design it. The design, the user experience, it emerged from a bunch of technology decisions, usually. It just kind of came out through, and we used some default library and a default Tableau chart, and we plop some charts in, and then we you know it links to the CRM and then it does something else and it was minimum viable product and it was a requirements document and it said it had to integrate with the whatever system and from this emerges some user experience which may or may not be great and most of the time it's not great because this stuff is technical it's usually technical it's usually complex and so that's byproduct design. And I want people to use intentional design. So design is the, the best definition I've heard of what is design is Jared Spools, which is it's the rendering of intent. And so how do we learn to put intent behind these decisions about what the user experience is going to be? And so product people, software product people largely, we think about this as, as the intersection of what's possible technically, data wise, all that stuff. What's wanted and needed. This is kind of more the realm of the user experience person. And then like the business part of it is is really the product lead, the product owner, the product manager would be really looking at it from all the other aspects, uh, sales, marketing, um, the business value, all of those things. I think good design includes the business part because you can't, if you don't get past the user adoption part, you can't get to the business value part, so good design designers are thinking both about the business value piece, which is usually what the person paying for it wants, but they're also keeping in check that, like, you're a performing arts organization, a nonprofit, and you want to see better ticket sale conversion rates through your mailers or whatever it may be. Okay, great. So you want to sell more tickets. But as a designer, we'd be thinking about it, like, what's it like to be a patron, a subscriber of this series, and what's wrong with the series now, such that people don't want the mailers, or they don't sign up, or why do they want to only buy one-off tickets? We would be looking at it from both the standpoint of what the business wants, but also what the quote user, which in this case is a subscriber to a concert series or something like this, what they want. And somewhere in the middle of this, the the design is the solution that, that renders the business outcome we want, but also keeps in mind what the user wants. And sometimes these things are at odds, like they don't wanna make these changes. Or as we've heard in sometimes with data, it's like, we say we want this stuff, but we don't really wanna hear the truth, which is like, yeah, I was reading your transcripts and you were talking about like, you know, drug, I didn't know this, but like these drug-free programs, like it sounds like they increase drug consumption, you know, it has the opposite effect, right? And so this is where it can get really tricky because you have your data people that are relentlessly usually seeking the truth And the truth sometimes isn't something we want to hear. And my thing there is to talk about how how do we decide what an outcome, a desirable outcome is at the beginning of the project, both for the humans in the loop, which includes the business stakeholders, the requesters, the payers, the fiscal sponsors, and the users there. What is a, again, quoting Jared Spool, he calls these user experience outcomes. There's a variety of outcomes that we want to be aligned around. The outcome of the business, the outcome of the user, not the output which is what the problem of most data teams that I work with is they're relentlessly focused on the nouns, making the nouns, the things, right? The dashboards, the models, the reports, the email notices, the, the technology, the engineering, the connecting it to the cloud, the connecting it to the CRM, the plumbing, and there's always lots of plumbing to do. And it feels like we're making progress because the list is a mile long of all the things we need to do with data management and data cleaning and data this and data that you could spend months on this stuff and it feels like you're making progress and you probably are. And some of that, I'm not saying that work is not needed, but all of that prep work is actually seeding the potential for some value to come out, but you really still haven't done anything yet. All you've done is rehearsal. You, the, the concert has not been played yet. And the SIJT hasn't hit the fan yet. And the journey begins at deployment, that's like, here's the first time we're seeing this data about something. Bam, that's actually day one. It's not when we started the project. Day one begins when the solution is in the hands of the users and the promise, the intended promise is now sitting out there and we wait to see, is the promise gonna be fulfilled? Will they use it? Do they care? Is it making them feel better? Like, are we making a literal improvement in somebody's life here such that Wow, I never knew this. I'm going to stop sending mailers out to our, quote, rich zip codes, because you know what, they're all online. They don't read the mail. They don't care. And we keep thinking we need to double down and send our mailers to the, you know, the wealthy zip codes. And, and there's a whole team that works on that. And as a leader, we need to say, you know what, this is not furthering the mission of getting butts in seats to listen to the arts. That's what the mission is. And if we're spending money sending mailers out to the wrong people, we're really not focused on the mission. And that can be hard if your job is send the mailers out. And so we have to think about the people and all this, and this is where it gets really tricky is when, especially I think with early data projects where we lights come on about things we never knew about, the reality sits in. And this is why I always like to tease out in the beginning, I recommend like, what, what did these outcomes look like? And let's talk about what a hard story is going to be like. If we find out something we think we don't want to hear, let's talk about it now, because If we're not ready to do anything about this and and face this stuff, don't spend the money on the project, you know, and this is tough. I I, I probably shouldn't have had this, it wasn't an argument with my wife, but we were talking about like testing for COVID. We, we, we just actually, my wife and kid got COVID when we were in Poland uh, a few weeks ago and she wanted to like test every day. And, you know, we had a limited number of tests and like, we hadn't been through that like day five window of incubation and my point was. Is testing today going to change anything about our behavior? Are we going to make any different decisions if we know day two, we're, we're because we're in a hotel room. The only place we're going is outside. We don't know anyone. And like our family, the extended family isn't around us. We're in this Airbnb. What are we going to do different if we find out? And it's like, well, just kind of to know. And, and I get that sometimes you want to know that. And, and, and it's like, if someone really wants to pay that and they think they're going to get something out of it, I just want to paint a picture for them that. If you think it's worth just knowing to know, but we're not gonna do anything with this, then fine. And, and that's, that might be a lot of money to just find that out. But I think the power of data is really like, would we make a different decision if we knew something about this? So maybe we should just wait till day five, because then we might decide, oh, we can take a mask off. Like that might be the decision point, or we're willing to go meet a friend for outdoor coffee now based on the results. Now there's a reason to test that's beyond the vanity metrics of just kind of knowing you're sick, even though you don't feel anything, you know? So anyhow, I I like to try to get teams teasing that stuff out at the beginning of the project. And this is all this human-centered design stuff. To me, it's the collection of all these non-technical things that need to happen to make sure the technology part has some value, has some meaning when it comes out. That was a horribly long answer to your question.
0: I, I feel like I can just mic drop out of here. That was so much value <laughs> in just a single question. And here I naively asked, What's human centered design? But what we got is that the art of human centered design is keeping the human at the center of re- rendering your intent. And there were, I mean, so much that you said in here. I was frantically taking notes because everything you were saying was just resonating so much. I was thinking about the seeking truth, right? And I am guilty of this. I love just to know, right? I want to know all of the things. I want all of the data and we're going to know all of the things, but we live in a resource limited world. And whether it's resources limited within our organization, the goodwill of your community, when you're trying to generate data, you, you can't ask them a thousand questions. They're eventually going to get tired of answering your questions or they're going to run out of time to complete your survey or whatever it is. So we do need to be a little bit ruthless in terms of figuring out Are we actually going to do something with this information? And I talked to Dr. Kristen Williams about survey writing, and she said, don't disrespect your community by asking them questions that you're not going to use. Don't ask them to fill in a survey if you're not prepared to take every single word they give you and use it to make a better decision. Don't, don't disrespect them that way. And I think that, you know, there's so much truth in so many different areas of making sure that, are you ready to embrace this uncomfortable truth? And I had another podcast guest say, Yurda, who talked about equity in hiring. And she said, you need to look at your data and prepare to be uncomfortable when you realize that who you hired is biased, right? That if you look around you, you know, you actually need to sit down and do the numbers and say, do we have a diverse set of people in our company, or if we hired a whole bunch of people who are just copies of ourselves. And and those are uncomfortable truths uh, that we sometimes have to look at and and then be braced to make decisions about them. I thought your concept of the no-null choice in the process is so interesting because it is very comforting, I think, to ourselves to think like, oh, I don't have to think about that piece. Or like, I don't want to make that decision because that's uncomfortable. I might be wrong. So I'll just not make the decision, but actually that's making a decision. Or or so many of those decisions get, like you said, get made as a byproduct. They get made accidentally, but they're still impacting the outcome that, that you get out of that. And I think around the space you know, with with nonprofits using data, there is an interesting thing as well with this evaluation piece. That again, we we can kind of ascribe the the ruthlessness to business. We're more comfortable saying, "Fine, cut something that doesn't work." That's an uncomfortable space for a nonprofit to be in. To say, "Okay, we've offered a program," and. And we'll, I think, well, I would like to dive a little bit deeper into this. We've decided what we'd like that program to do piece because we don't always take that step. But let's say you do and you say this program is going to increase literacy among you know elementary school students and you measure it and you don't see those impacts. You don't see literacy increasing. What a very uncomfortable place to be in. And to think about that from the beginning, that that should be part of the data process, I don't think a lot of people are aware of. That we should be thinking about this and designing our evaluation of how are we going to be comfortable when it comes back that maybe this program is not doing what we want. And have we set this up in a space where if we get the data and it says we're not effective, are we just going to discard it and say, oh, well, we didn't design it properly? Or are we satisfied with our development process to the point where we will embrace that information and do something with it? And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that process from the beginning, because I think sometimes we back into this a little bit and we get ourselves very stuck. But how do we think about the outcomes that we want from the beginning and think about that intentionally, rendering our intent, making sure that we're intentionally picking how we do the data collection, how we analyze it, how we make that decision all the way through that process?
1: I wanted to also address, you you talked about the like finding out this program is working and I've worked in large enterprises. I wasn't in management. I was in management at startups. And then I went solo a long time ago, but i work with a lot of leaders and I, I never took the, the idea of experiment. You know, I'm also an artist in-, in this idea of experimentation and you don't know what's going to work and getting comfortable with not knowing what's going to work and reframe. And the reason I mention this is re- I think, what if we reframe these programs as we call them experiments? They're not a pro, it's not a program for literacy. It's an experiment to see if we can impact literacy of first graders on Indian, you know, in native Indian Indian reservation and Northern Arizona, that's an experiment. It's not a program. It's an experiment. So we might like scientists, like you got your hypothesis. We think this is going to happen. You have an intervention, you measure it, you see what happens and then decide, are we going to continue? Do we change it? Do we abandon it? But it's an experiment with the focus on learning. The focus is on did we have an impact or not, as opposed to a program, which sounds like something that gets funded and then it could get shut down or it could be really successful and it goes into PR. But it's not really about learning whether or not we had an impact. It's about, it almost centers itself more around the program than the outcomes the program was supposed to promise. And the idea of experiment to me makes it sound like there's a possibility it may not work. And so I think teams that want to do innovative work, first of all, you can't do innovative work if you're just repeating yesterday and assuming that everything we do has a for sure known result that's going to happen, that is not innovation. That's just repeating yesterday and, and playing it safe. Innovation by definition means we tried some stuff and it didn't work. And we tried some new things and it didn't work. And then the fourth time we did it, it worked or it started to work. It, and it's getting comfortable with that. It's not perfect. And I was just listening to one of my heroes, Seth Godin who's a very famous marketer, and he's like, you know, plumbers don't get plumber's block. You know, writers get, writers and artists get this writer's block and they get this exception. And, and his whole framing is the idea, what you're really fighting against is being perfect. What if you just decided my job as a writer is to write, and it starts with writing a bunch of bad stuff, and then eventually the writing gets good, but the plumber doesn't just, I just don't know how I'm gonna approach this clogged toilet today. Like, they don't say that. They get going and it's like, oh, I broke the pipe and now I need this tool. And they jump in and there's there's no block that happens. And I think this idea of perfectionism or we don't really wanna face what the truth is gonna be. We don't wanna even plan for anything that could be possibly negative. Like maybe the program just needs to be shut down. And yes, I know my brother-in-law runs that program or you know, whatever the, all this stuff that comes with that. I think data people can be really good at kind of being objective here, but feelings also matter too. And I think the more we can tease out this stuff at the beginning of the process and talk about the different paths that we might find ourselves on, and then how are we going to make some decisions here at the beginning, predeciding some of this stuff. So it's not a surprise. So when we get that result, like this program actually made learning worse against the KPIs that we established, yikes. I would say, though, what did, what did work? We actually have KPIs for learning, which we never had before, and we we all agree that these were actually good KPIs for learning. So that was a positive thing. Unfortunately, this particular intervention didn't happen. But now we at least know how to measure this in a non-opinionated way. Now it's an objective way that we can all agree about. So now the question is, do we refactor the program or, you know, do we try a different program or a different experiment, as I was saying earlier? But how do designers do this? Well, a lo- a lot of what we do is is focused on prototyping and getting feedback from the humans in the loop as fast as possible. So this means trying to design these solutions and the lowest fidelity possible to get feedback as soon as possible. And I'm usually talking about, for a lot of the work I do, qualitative feedback, not quantitative feedback. We're, we're usually not dealing with stuff where it's like, you know, we're Instagram, we're rolling out a new feature and we can just, let's just give it to 4 million people and then we'll run an AB test on it. That's great if you're at that level of scale, you can just run all kinds of little experiments. A lot of people don't even know they're running like the button color is different on this interface than that one. And they're hyper tuning all these different, you know, parameters here. For our kind of work, the kind of small and medium data type work that maybe we're talking about today, we can come up with fungible reports. We can come up with, here's a machine learning model that's supposed to predict who's going to buy tickets to your next performing arts series. And here's the list of these names that came up and here's the, the regions they live in and here's what they did in the past. And we can come up with a batch of four or five different ones. And, and this is a fun place where maybe you get your data people, maybe you get your stakeholder involved, a design, a creative person. And we imagine what the model might predict. Well, let's say we can imagine it's going to predict people that have bought a lot of stuff in the past. So let's come up with a list of that stuff. Why are we doing this? Well, then we get this list in front of the person that would make a decision about what marketing campaign are we now going to use against batches of people that look like this segment. What I would be doing as a designer is I want to hear the resistance. Tell me all the reasons now you're going to say, no, that can't, this cannot possibly be right. These people, I haven't seen them at a concert and 10 years, there's no way that like the model that your machine model must be wrong or whatever. We're trying to tease out the either the resistance to it, or it could be things like what we call usability metrics or utility metrics. Like, I don't know what this col- these columns of data mean such that I could even know whether or not this list is good. Like, I don't feel confident that I should change my marketing plan based on this subscriber list that you gave me because I've never seen this data. I don't even know what these columns mean. Okay, so now we have a utility problem. And a usability problem would be like, oh, you guys built me this dashboard that I'm supposed to be able to slice and dice these reports. And then I can look up, you know, X, Y, and Z. But they don't know how to use it. They don't know what the data means, or they don't know how to work through it because the interface is really confusing, or it's tons and tons of charts and line graphs and and stuff. and, And they have to do what I call eyeballing, a lot of eyeball analysis to get to some feeling of decision empowerment right? That, and we can test these things through usability testing and, and stuff. And we don't need to actually build out these, the solutions with real technology. Now, it's always better to, to test against real working code prototypes, things like this. You're going to usually get better data. But and maybe we should talk about this, like better data, like even qualitative data, right? And this idea of measurement versus accuracy. What we're trying to do as designers is figure out Is the design and experience on the right track before we have overcommitted to too much technology stuff? At which point we have all the sunk cost bias kicks in, like now that we are in the cloud. And now that we've connected this data system to that one, and now we've built, we have a data scientist on the team. Oh my gosh, now we have our first model. Nobody wants to hear that like, hey, you know what? There's no need for a data scientist here. This, we we are so not in the place to be doing any type of predictions here. There's nothing to see here. Go home. Nobody wants to hear that month seven. Now, some of that can't be known until you get to that stage. And I understand, and I'm not a technologist. I'm not a data scientist. I'm not an analyst. And I, and I know sometimes you do have to get 60% of the way through to find out you can't get all the way through, but there are other ways to figure out from a human standpoint, where it's gonna break down before we've committed to all of that. And really this is something we do together. This design is an act of facilitation with the business, with the technology people, with the designers, with the stakeholders, with the subject matter expertise. A lot of what, when I'm working as a designer, as a consultant, that's a lot of my work is getting this facilitation going and getting everybody centered around these desirable outcomes that we wanna have and not just the outputs piece. How will we measure it? How will we know, we keep talking about this dashboard that's gonna be for the CEO, but what decisions are they supposed to be able to make? It's not time to talk about Power BI or Tableau. Wrong conversation. That's not the right conversation. I wanna know how are they gonna use this? When are they gonna use it? What's their appetite? How do they use data now? So research comes into play here. And a lot of times we find out we don't know anything about the people who it's for. And that's why UX, a big part of doing user experience design and human centered design is research. I mean, that's the fundamental part of it is how much time are you spending with the users and customers? And if you don't know what it's like to be them, there's no way you can repeatedly build great solutions for them because you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to, to lead, you know, uh, business development or to lead you know, your fundraising or the marketing channel, like the marketing team to be the CMO of the organization. If you don't know what it's like to be them, it's gonna be really hard to hit the nail on the head, at least repeatedly. And guessing is not a repeatable framework. Guessing is about getting lucky. Another long answer, but.
0: (laughs) Well, no, I love it. Like I said, I'm frantically taking notes. And it's interesting because so much of what you were talking about, about designing good data products, It's the same thing that we have about designing good interventions. So when we're talking about trying to make change happen in the world, it's the same approach, right? The how are you supposed to be able to make something that works if you don't know what it's like to be the person who's using it? Like, same thing. How are you going to design a program that serves refugees if you don't know what it's like being a refugee?
1: Right. You've never talked to one. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Right. You darn well should not only be spending a heck of a lot of time with refugees and the population you're trying to serve, but they should be your stakeholders right? You should have someone who is currently a refugee helping you figure out what is the outcomes? What would help me? Because it would be really, like, again, how embarrassing and painful and elitist in some ways to be like, I think what a refugee needs is this. (laughs) Like, no, no, no. You go and you ask the refugees and you say, how can we serve you? right we want to be successful in serving you and we're going to design not only an experiment to see if we can succeed in doing that but we also want to make sure that we're measuring the success of that in a way that makes sense to the people that we're trying to serve and so it's both about designing the intervention or the experiment and I love your reframing of program to experiment and also the how we're measuring it how will we know that we're succeeding in this and your iteration Right, do this as fast as possible, because we want to make sure that we get as feedback as soon as possible. Because the sunk cost thing, I have seen a lot of interventions that continue because they got to that point of sunk cost and were afraid to turn back. Right.
1: Sure. Oh, it happens all the time, and it gets worse. The more expensive and and bigger it is, the worse it is. It just and it's tough. Nobody wants to put their butt on the line and and take ownership of that. And this is why. It's a lot of times, you know, clients, you know, especially, you know, tech technical clients, like, well, we don't have time for design. Like, yeah, well, we're gonna, you know, we'll come back and we're gonna hire an interface designer to come in at the end of the project. It's like, if you wanna actually have an impact, the time to bring them in is at the beginning of the project, because by then you've already made all the technical decisions. You're not gonna wanna hear that nobody can use this dashboard, let alone all the like meat and potatoes and fancy stuff that lives somewhere down on the third screen, after you drill down in these charts and all this, there's this predictive model that will tell you the future and all this kind of stuff. They shut down as soon as they saw the front page. They're like, I don't have time for this. I'll go to the way I've always done it. Done, like full hard stop. And so how do we find that out earlier so the entire team can shift? And that's why we do this design stuff up front. It's slowing down a little bit at the beginning to speed up the overall thing and to increase the chance of putting something that matters out into the world. That's why we do the design stuff. And if you think it's just about surface and making it look nice, yes, look, looking nice, feeling empowered, feelings, looks, all this stuff actually do matter. There's science behind this stuff. That stuff also does matter. But, and that's the surface stuff that when we talk about design, most people are thinking about fonts and colors and things like this, and that stuff does matter, but that's just the surface level you can get all that right, but get all the rest of the stuff wrong as well. And guess what? No one's going to be talking about fonts and colors if they don't care, because they're not even paying attention anymore. You've already lost them. So design works at several different altitudes, and it's really there to increase the chance of putting something that matters into the world. That That's ultimately what it's about.
0: And your idea of predeciding a lot of how you will interpret the things that come out of that, right? So from the beginning, whether it's, okay, how will we consider whether this successful adoption, right? what will successful adoption look like to us? And we're going to decide that before we deploy it. And so then when we reach that level, we'll all agree we're happy to move forward. And when we don't reach that level, based on how we've already decided to measure it from the beginning, it's it's easier and more acceptable to, to get that feedback very quickly and say, okay, we need to make some changes. Either we need to tweak how we're doing it, we need to go in a different direction, we're going to have to go back and do new iterations and modify that rather than like, yeah, getting all the way to the end and then having an argument about are we actually measuring engagement properly or you know all of that at the end by pre-deciding a lot of that, which requires having design thinking from the very beginning and not waiting until you get to the end. And I love that idea of pre-deciding. And I think that this is really important, again, whether you're talking about designing an intervention itself, a new program, a new product, a new whatever, or actually how you're going to measure said new thing, you have to have that pre-deciding happening at the very, very beginning.
1: This reminds me of the importance of having real leadership represented in these things. And if that means it needs to go to the C-level, fine, because somebody needs to put a stake in the ground. Otherwise, you're jerking the team around because they have no idea now what success looks like. And I think most people would rather just know, okay, we're, we're looking for 52 out of 100, whatever that freaking metric is, fine. And, and it's like, even if we don't hit it, at least now we know we didn't. And now we we know what to change or, or whatever. And it's not like your job is on the line. If it's 51, you're fired. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being a leader and putting a flag somewhere that the team can then hit. And that will totally help the project if you can put some of these boundaries in place about what is success, what is okay, what is a failure. I often ask my clients, my US clients at least, you know, what's a base hit success for this project? Like if I help you out, like. What's a base hit? And that allows me to ask, well, what is a home run then if, if a 10% lift here or like your sales close twice as fast, you know, because they understand the software that we're giving to them or whatever the heck it is, what's the Delta between that base hit and a home run and start to put some stakes in the ground here. And it's really, a lot of people are afraid to put these numbers in. And so sometimes I'm like, well, what's the fastest experiment we could run to get a benchmark because it sounds like what we need now is a benchmark because we just have no idea we're too afraid to throw something out is there something we could do to just find out what is our current state like let's just learn current state somehow and then we can talk about the level of improvement we want or we can say you know what we're not going to do anything until we know what current state is we are running the fastest experiment the point of this project is to find out how are we doing now with our mailer campaign for you know again going back to this performing arts example Are we able to get new audiences from minority communities because we're a wealthy white suburban community and we're trying to build programming to get people who normally aren't experiencing some of the arts that we're bringing in from all over the world to this community? Is it 10 butts in the seat per show? Is it the number of single people that had any experience with that? Like, how do we measure it? Before we technically measure it, we have to business-wise discuss it, right? And, and as you said, well, what is it like to be that person that came to this show? Like, what is their measurement of a good experience? Like, that's probably a valuable metric to have as well. And we can, we can get into like this idea of measurement and accuracy thing too, which I, I think is where, especially with data stuff, we sometimes get hung up on that, this idea of accuracy versus measurement. So I don't know if you want to get into that though. It's not my expertise, but like...
0: No, well, the thing that also comes up for me because I have this discussion a lot is that one of the reasons people are afraid to put their stakes in the ground is they'll say the thing that I'm doing, you know, is unmeasurable, right? This idea of, you know, not all things that matter can be measured and not all things that are measured matter. And so we have this concept, especially when we start moving away from things we're used to counting, like money, and we move into space like, you know, helping victims of sexual assaults recover. You know, how do you measure the success of those? And I'm putting air quotes around intangibles, these things that are not typically commonly measured.
1: Got it. Well, so I'll just ask you, Alexandra. So so you want to help victims of sexual assault recover? Is that what you said?
0: That was one of the examples I pulled out, yes. Okay. So
1: <laughs> but are you saying? Are you saying they're not recovering as well as they could be?
0: Right. So, How do you
1: know they're not recovering as well as they could be?
0: Right. Because you see a problem. Right. You said, so you oh, observe they're... something. Right. Like they're struggling in work. They, they're they more likely to be unemployed because they have trauma that they haven't dealt with and that interferes with them in some way. But you only know that they have trauma that is interfering with them because you see the interference happen. Their relationships struggle or you know, they're more likely to get divorced or there is something out there that is observable.
1: Right. Exactly. So, but you're saying we can't possibly measure It's like, well, you just gave me five different things that are all quite, uh, are you employed? Yes or no, part-time, full-time, self-employed, not. That is a very measurable thing that you can go out and figure out. So you've just, and and so, and then you can say, well, we don't know if it's because of the assault is the reason that they're not. And, And now you're getting into accuracy, but you've already decided that we're not doing a good enough job because we're seeing low employment rates for victims of sexual assault and you've already decided that that matters otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation about making it better so this is that idea of and you know this the accuracy thing versus the measurement thing and we might have to get comfortable and this is why it's like let's pre-decide let's talk about it what if we saw after this this experiment we ran that that employment was twice as much and we also did look at how to overall employment in this you know, region of the country go as well. We controlled for that when we looked at the employment and we see a lift of 12%. Dear CEO, does that matter if we saw a 12% that is that, is that headline news? Does anybody care? Or is that just like, well, that's, I don't know, like, I'm not too excited. Well, what if it was 30%, 30%, I would get a giant raise. The board would be singing my praises. So that sounds like a home run. Yeah. Okay. So. It sounds like we're looking for a 30% rate. Like this is how you get into that. Right. And, 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 this is the uncomfortable stuff though, because it means someone has to start putting some numbers on things. They have to start putting some stakes in the ground. And I think that can be really scary. And you still, as a leader, you reserve the right to change your mind later on. But I think when confronted with all these facts and a team that you've set up and said, we may sunset this program if we see the following metrics are, are here. Why? Because we want to double down on the things that work. Not that we want to shut down the people or the, the the processes or the programs, but because we want to double down on the things that are really working. And if we can figure out what those are, our impact is going to be bigger. And that's why we need to have a strategy and a vision so that people understand my job is not to send mailers out to people. My job is to get our artists that we book for our concert season exposed to as many people in our community as possible because it's enriching lives am i helping do that or not they need to connect their work day to day to what that outcome is and that's a leadership thing that needs to be painted you know
0: there's a an apocryphal story of the idea of three bricklayers working and a gentleman comes up to the three bricklayers and he says what are you doing and the first bricklayer says i'm laying bricks and the second bricklayer says i'm building a church and the third bricklayer says i'm saving souls right and the idea is like you're you're doing actions and i think it goes back to the point that you you made about getting so caught up in the outputs like i'm building the thing i am doing the program and if that's your identity if that's what you're tied to then yes it could be very hard to sunset a program or to pivot a program but if from the beginning you predecide the reason we exist is not to put books in backpacks but is to help children be more comfortable reading, then it would be okay if we change the book and backpacks program to being a big brother, big sister reading program. And that instead, what we're really focused on is the, are we improving the literacy piece and less attached to necessarily how we're delivering that piece. But you have to be intentional about that decision from the beginning of what are we committed to as people? And then are we measuring that in a way that will be satisfied that we're making a difference? And I love that of the First, we've seen an observable problem. And let's start with that definition. How do we know this is something we want to change because of this thing we see? Well, what if that's our starting place? And then we can argue about how accurately we're capturing that. And I think there is a lot of space to disagree about methods of collecting that. And I think you you get to is the idea of we don't have to be perfect. It just has to be better. And if we feel satisfied that we're doing a better job with this using this piece of information than we were doing without. And if our stakeholders are are satisfied with that and our funders are satisfied with that or our customers are satisfied with that, then we can move forward with it. It doesn't have to be perfect.
1: Yeah. I had a moment in my life where, you know, you have these moments in your life where like, ding, this light goes on and it changes your thinking. And And I remember this when I was working for a, you know, I did a lot of work for companies that build software to run data centers, like the people that maintain basically the oxygen of the enterprise right your your outlook and your email and your the CRM and the oracle sap system that large companies it's just you just assume it's going to work like just like oxygen is always available right until it doesn't until it's like 15 minutes to reload your inbox and then all of a sudden people are not happy well i worked at a company a startup that that monitored these systems and the whole point of it was like to help troubleshoot Performance and slowness issues using analytics. So then, this, uh, you know, these storage and virtualization administrators who are the people that manage the stuff can go fix it, right? And we actually developed some pretty cool root cause analysis uh, technology with analytics that would go in and look at, you know, all the different telemetry that was being collected and try to look for you know, root cause like, well, what, why is it? It's it's because the disc is full on the storage array over here and it's causing a a queuing at the disc layer and blah, 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 whatever the technical reasons were. And as we did this, that I could see the discomfort in some of the engineers because they knew all the things that, that a human being would go try to check were not checkable by the software. Cause it couldn't check every, every possible reason slowness can happen because, and how did I know to do this? Well, when, as a designer, I'm trying to understand from the people that do this work, well, how do you troubleshoot it now using the tools you have now? And they have their human algorithm, their checklist or whatever their process is. And I'm like, let's put this in the tool and get the software to do this more accurately and faster, as much of it as we can. And over time you're like, oh, there's 10 things on the list, but, but balance point only does six of those things. And they're just, and now you're putting a recommendation on the dashboard to say, well, we think you have a memory leak in this virtual machine that's causing a whatever. And here's all the evidence, all the charts that show the correlations and why we think this is the proof. And they're hung up on the fact that it didn't look at, is it plugged in? Is it cabled properly? Is it, it doesn't know about that part of the world. And it's like, we put this half baked thing, like in their mind, like this half baked thing. And I'm like, the whole metric of success here is business downtime for these systems is really expensive. If you can help troubleshoot any amount faster, this product is creating a lot of value. So if, it's checks, if it can immediately check off six of the 10 things and it leaves them with four things that a human being needs to check, or maybe another another application they have to use to check those four things, you've just done something really amazing right there. But the rub for the data people, for the engineers to know, and they also know some of the calculations are like rough and it's like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to put this out into like something with my name on it. They're just like, because it's like half baked and it, it's a regression model, but it only looks at like monthly cycles. And these systems are used like yearly and it's like, oh, it's going to send all these wrong alerts out. It, like they're so hung up on the accuracy part and missing the part about what was the value? It's maximized business uptime. Do not let these systems pull the entire mission of the business down because people can't check their email or they can't put their receipts into the expense system, or we can't take sales on the website or whatever, or think about something mission critical, like Red Cross, like the, the, no one can communicate right now. All comms are down. All digital communication is down because this system, the disk is full here like, and now that's having impact on earthquake, but like, you can start to see how that has a real impact there. And you're worried about the level of accuracy of like the analytics and blah, blah, blah. You gotta have people who frankly have their heads above the sand. And it's a different kind of thinking. I'm trying to bring as much of this thinking into the world of, of we have really smart analysts and data scientists and people with many more letters after their name than I have And i'm like you guys can learn this stuff and you don't have to be capital d designers i'm not trying to turn everybody into a capital d designer i'm just trying to arm them with some of these tools and in the idea that this will help you do your work better and your work will matter more because isn't it more fun to work on stuff that actually makes a difference to say kids are reading more as a result of this thing that i did and this intervention and we built this data model and it told us where to intervene at the right time and apparently kids are reading more and That was the whole mission. And I was part of that. Like, I, I don't know, we have so many hours on this planet. it's like, you want to, I want to do work that matters. And I, and I built, I've been on enough large enterprise stuff that was just like, this is a dead ship. This is just like a ship with no trajectory and it's just gonna run aground at some point. And, and you know, this is not gonna make a difference. It's just, and no one wants to stand up and say that, like, I don't know, maybe you've been on some of those projects, but like, it's not fun. And I want to I do work that matters now, and, and I want to help other people do that work as well, you
0: know? And I, th- I think the fact that you could say, would I rather make no impact at all than make a little less impact than we could if things were perfect? And if you ask yourself that of, well, would I still like to make some impact? I'll take this step forward and make that some impact because who knows, maybe by taking that step forward, if I'm embracing it from the point of view of the innovation and the iteration, that next step does not have to be the last step. I think that's also where people get stuck on this idea of it has to be perfect is I only get to do this once. I'm gonna try this once and that's it that putting that stake in the ground means that I can never change. I can never try something again or try something different when instead it's like, no, this is just gonna be our feedback mechanism. We're gonna try it. We're gonna see if we get to first base. We have to define first base to know if we get there. And then if we don't get there, we're gonna try something different. And if we do get there, we can try for second base. You know, (laughs) like Maybe the way we hit was never gonna get us a home run, but it got us to first base. And now from first base, we can get to second base and that willingness to keep trying and keep iterating to make sure that yeah with the hours that were granted we at least make some impact and have a shot at making more
1: impact yeah yeah i think you know if you're you were telling me about you know your audience and if if it's nonprofits and people that are probably not in the data field that are listening to this i think part of the way you can have a better result if you're if you're looking to get outside help with these kinds of things or even in, if you already have a team and you're trying to get in, get better results from the teams you have, it's to know what these outcomes are that you want, and to not bring a solution into the room, bring a problem into the into the room, and let the team own the problem. So what do I mean by that? It, what I mean is I would like to use an AI chatbot to increase reading literacy for kids age whatever to whatever in Flagstaff, Arizona, and the Native American community. I liked all of that part except for the we want to use an AI chatbot too. You've just loaded the assumption that an AI chatbot is the right quote intervention, or in this case, the right technology method to do that. And it's okay to have a hypothesis that maybe there's a way to do that. The downside of this is there's way too many firms, employees, and people that are like, my job is to build AI chatbots. And if you bring one of those people in, they are going to, by golly, they are going to deliver an AI chatbot because that's what you asked for. And the rest of the part about are they reading more was kind of secondary to build an AI chatbot. And we're all victims of this. We need a new website. We've all heard this one before, right? No, you don't. You want some downstream outcome, a promise that a website is supposed to give. What is that? Brand? Lead generation? Mailing list signups? There's a reason you want it and it's not that, but there's a lot of people who will open WordPress and ask you what colors you like. And where is the photos? Can you send me some copy? Like, send me some copy. About what? Like, the copywriting is the design. Like, you can't not, what? You know? (laughs) So be really cognizant of whether your request has a solution built into it already. And if you hire the right people and let them own the problem space, which is, I want to increase reading literacy on these metrics by 10% in the next, next six months. How do we do that? Can we do that? I don't know. Like, that's a much better problem for the right kind of team. And there will be people who still just want to build the chatbot, that still just want to make the website. And then there's nothing wrong with that. I think you need good hands, good execution. At some point, it's time to get some work to, to, to do the delivery part and the execution. But so many teams only have that, I find out. they They don't have the strategy part there. They don't know what the objectives are. And, and the success is defined by a list of features, functions, requirements, and things, things to be built. A, a campaign. The result is we need to have a marketing campaign. That, that's what we want from you. And we need, and I want to see at least 10 different ads. Those are a bunch of outputs, but what, like ads that do what? That drive mailing list signups, that just deliver impressions? Like what is the metric by which you would say, is the campaign working well or not? Any Joe Schmo can go build some advertising and start an SEM campaign for you, but what is the thing you want out of that? And so that, that's, that really looking at the outcome piece. It's, it's tough. And last thing I want to say on this too, is, is that I just read this article and it was floating around from Sundar Pichai, you know, the CEO of Alphabet, the Google's holding company about how he has this opposite take, which is rewarding. We need to re- reward employees for outputs, not for outcomes, because If you just reward the outcomes, people don't want to take risks anymore. And I'm totally okay with rewarding outputs and effort. As long as the desired outcomes were defined and they, if they missed it, fine, but they knew what they were going for. That's, that's the thing that I felt was missing in this statement he put out was did the teams that were trying know what they were going for? And they weren't just trying to spit out as much code reports, analytics, dashboards, things. That was not what they were being rewarded for. It was attempts at the desirable outcomes. So yes, reward effort. And I agree with that idea because you want people that are learning. You want people that try, learn something. When it doesn't work, they're like, oh my gosh, we'll never do that again. That was like, we learned a ton and now we're gonna do it this way. That's the kind of people you do want on your team, not the ones that just keep, my job is to stamp the envelope and send it out. And I don't care whether the address is good or not. That's not who you want on your team, you know? So. Yeah, I just thought that was fresh in my mind because I saw that article recently and, you know.
0: <laughs> and I, I think that's a great place to finish on because I do think that that is such an important balance to make. And I love the idea of, of challenging the people listening. You know, are you defining things by a preconceived solution or are you defining things by the challenge that you're trying to accomplish, right? The challenge that you're trying to meet and overcome and being open to looking at different ways and Iterating, trying, seeing if those things are succeeding, which you can only try and see if they're succeeding if you're measuring then whether or not, you know, you've succeeded by whatever measure you're picking for success. And then combining this idea that we can reward the try and we can acknowledge and celebrate the try so that we are brave enough to take those risks without losing sight of the fact that the reason we're trying is because we have this great need that we must meet. We have this great challenge we must overcome. We have this change that we want to see in the world. And we'll only get there if we're willing to keep trying different outputs and getting closer and closer to that.
1: Yeah.
0: So we'll- (laughs) <laughs> I know. I the thing is, we could. I think we could have this conversation for hours and hours and hours. But I want to be respectful of your time. We're basically at the top of the hour. Um, but I have, as you've seen, I've pages full of notes. So this has been just a delightful conversation. Good,
1: good, good. Well, it's great to be uh, be here, and thanks for for letting me come in and talk about design with your audience.
0: Any day. I hope that everyone listening has learned as much as I have.
1: <laughs> cool.
0: You have been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Merakinos, an analytics education, consulting, and data services company devoted to helping nonprofits and social enterprises amplify their impacts and thrive through data. You can learn more at Merakinos.com, M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.